when I got to industry, the problems are fascinating because of their complexity, right? If you look at an app like Facebook, how do we make this a good app to use? And I will speak to having worked there, you know, roughly 10 years ago. At that point, it was how do we actually make this engaging? How do we make this interesting for folks? How do we make this useful and not full of friction, right? And difficult to use. And those type of questions are fascinating to investigate. You can actually jump in and have some really good research questions that then you can do experiments, see how things work and follow up. And so the types of projects that I worked on there were how do we make these experiences better for folks? I then worked, you know, I actually moved into Google after that and worked on a team called People Analytics, which says, how do we make employee experiences better? Fascinating questions there as well. And then at the end, I worked on Google Cloud, which again, there's that question of how do we understand how someone buys a cloud product and actually enable our products to meet their needs? Those are focused research questions, right? They have a sort of very clear outcome that they need, but the complexity, the possible range of outcomes you can discover, there's a lot of intellectual stimulation available there. Welcome to this new episode of Papa PhD. Today, I have the pleasure of bringing you someone who is going to be talking about what can happen professionally after a PhD, after graduate school in social sciences. And I'm talking about Dr. Victoria Wobber, better known as Tori Wobber. Tori Wobber has three degrees from Harvard, worked at Facebook and Google, and now runs her own business. She developed the Academic Exit Framework after making the transition from academia to industry herself and coaching more than 50 people through the same transition. Tori received her PhD in human evolution biology in 2012 and secured a role as data scientist at Facebook in 2013. She now runs her own business as a career and leadership coach. Tori, welcome to Papa PhD. Thank you, David. Happy to be here. So I'm super, super happy to have you here because a I come from the STEM side of things, although I discovered, you know, uh, through your, through your, uh, through learning about you, that you come from from the life sciences too. But the the, the conversation that kind of stemmed the interest uh, of uh, and, and the wish for me to have you on Papa PhD was around a different side side of things, a different space, which is social sciences. The transition from uh, from a social sciences PhD to the tech space really got me curious. And uh, and this is why uh, I'm, I'm super thankful that you're here today to talk about that. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited to speak to it. The more folks who I can help show that path to, that it's possible to take your social science doctoral training and apply it immediately in the tech industry without additional courses or training to get there. If folks mm. can see that door open to them, Knowing that right now tech is in a slower hiring climate, but that in general, it's a great path. And so excited to help yeah. illuminate that opportunity and potentially many others for folks. So one thing we can start from and based on your bio is how did that transpire that that coming from evolutionary biology to going to work as a data scientist at Facebook? What was the what was the path? What, what were the conversations that took place that that took you there? Yeah. Well, so maybe I'll share my journey out of academics and then how okay. I landed on data science. Uh, I spent two seasons on the faculty job market, one as ABD, mm -hmm. one the, as a postdoc. I did six on-site interviews and had zero offers. 
Mm-hmm. And I had said to myself after that second season, okay, if this doesn't work after this season, that's it. Two is enough. Okay. I'm done. And so I think the last uh, offer that didn't come in was in March, March of uh, 2013. I knew I wasn't getting an academic offer. And by July, I had a data science offer in hand at Facebook. Hmm. What I did between March and July was explore everything, everything. You know, I was talking to friends of friends, friends, moms, who whoever would have a conversation and tell me about their work. I was chatting with them to say, what can I do? I stumbled into data science as an area where I could leverage my existing data skills, albeit in a very different subject matter domain. <laughs> no, I can make a, I, I used to make a joke that, you know, I, I worked with chimpanzees and then I went and worked with Facebook users. Behaviors weren't that different, you know, <laughs> that's a little bit uncharitable. But, uh, but yeah, I basically took those data skills and could apply them in, uh, in data science in tech very readily. I managed to land the Facebook interview through an internal referral. And then from there, had a successful career in the tech industry for seven years and then decided to start my own business. And so I think honing in on data science is an area where I could leverage my existing quantitative skills and being willing to network to make that a reality were the two things that empowered me to make that move. Mm -hmm. So you said that it was through an internal uh, referral uh, program. So someone you in your network knew you and pro- and proposed you for that position or or brought your cv in was is that what happened yeah well and basically i had at that point honed a data science ready resume with okay. advice from friends and colleagues and actually there was a woman at my office of career services at my university who helped me prepare my resume who had placed other phd's into various positions. Her name is Heather Law. She's wonderful. (laughs) It's inspired what I do today. And so the amount that I had a ready resume, when I, through a friend of a friend, was able to get in front of someone who worked at Facebook, they said, this is a great resume. Happy to pass this along. So I think both the networking and the resume work enabled that to click. And then actually being not nervous in the interview probably Mm -hmm. was part of it as well. I had interviewed for two years and just been really poor in my interviewing but I did some interview mindset reframing before that interview that I like to see as having crediting, uh, crediting me uh, the ability to show the skills I already had in that conversation. Okay. Uh, interview. Can you talk about interview mindset reframing? Is that the term that you use? It's the first time I, I hear it and it's very, very interesting. I know it sounds a little hokey, right? But at least for me, I initially, I think when I did my academic job interviews, I almost viewed them like I was auditioning for a play. And that my job talk was my monologue and that, you know, it was going to be, okay, am I in this play? Am I getting the part or not? (laughs) And so I was very nervous and trying to sort of play this part. And then when I started interviewing in in industry, it felt like a test. They would ask Mm -hmm. these questions that were math and probability, sequels, statistics. So it felt like a test. And before my Facebook interview, I decided to act as though I already had the job and treat Mm. the interview as a day on the job. Because I figured that that would provide the most representative indication of whether I would like the work, right? If I imagined I already had it and treated the interview like a day on the job, and it would reflect what I would be like to work with as a collaborator and a partner, which is what an interview in principle should be. So I think Mm. that on the job mindset, almost that notion of let's bi-directionally assess fit here, as opposed to viewing it as a test or as a monologue, 
that helped me and that landed me the Facebook job and then landed me four of the five next loops I went on post Facebook. And so that mindset served me and allowed me to calm my nerves effectively. This is super, super interesting because uh, I just had two days ago another Papa PhD conversation with Mark Reed, who just wrote this book, I Am Not a Fraud. And I, and I feel that this question of uh, have being nervous at an interview, part of it may be, and maybe it wasn't the case for you, but in my case, uh, imposter phenomenon or imposter feelings might probably have, have done. And it seems like here you kind of role play, you've kind of turned the thing on its head by role playing as if, no, I I have the job. This is my colleague. I'm just going to talk about what I do. And uh, it's super smart and, and, and it, it's super cool to see how we can trick our brain <laughs> and our nervous system into dealing with these situations. Because when we're nervous, we can't even answer questions that we do know, right? They could ask you, what's your middle name? And you're like, ah, uh, uh. <laughs> so it, it prevents you from showing skills you already have. And so I feel like once you go in saying, I'm going to display the skills I have as they are, if they fit, awesome. If they don't fit, that's okay. Mm-hmm. If you can go in with that confidence, you give yourself a chance at success. But yeah, it takes a little pep talk. I now encourage folks to have like a game day routine of like okay. before the interview, like you've seen, you know, probably professional athletes before they go to actually execute. Yeah. They've got the physical training. At that point, it's mental. And so they've got things like their music, their routine. And so if there are things you can do to help yourself feel in the zone, and feel like, yeah, I'm awesome. I have a lot to bring to the table. That is a piece of the interview that I think we neglect and that mm-hmm. putting a little energy towards can go a long way. I totally agree. And uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to look, look into this concept that you mentioned. Now, one, thing, one other thing that interests me is the following. Uh, we might, uh, you know, hypothetically exclude ourselves from... Uh, from um, applying to a job because oh I you know I wasn't trained in, you know I don't come from programming I don't come from uh, from that side of, uh, of of that you know from that space I don't belong there and one of the things that that you're 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 I'm kind of reading in what you're saying is think again a lot of what you've learned does apply in other domains uh, and one thing I'd love to know is because people kind of fear this question, did, were you asked, why did you do a PhD and now want to do, uh, you know, to work in at Facebook in this or that position? Because uh, I think it's a question that puts people uncomfortable. They they might uh, they might still be dealing with, you know, feelings of failure or whatever from leaving academia, for example. What, what's what was your experience with this this? getting into a new space and saying, well, doing the the work that you did of, of, of saying, okay, I'm going to act as if I already belong. But what was the perception from the other side? Yeah. Oh, there are so many, so many interesting questions there. So the process to get to that confidence was a year and a half of struggling. So I don't want to say that I just like, I mean, I did just wake up one day and decide to choose a different approach, but it was a year and a half of banging my head against the wall. So I don't want to intimate that it was easy. And I will say that for me, having then the socially appropriate messaging about why to leave rather than the real messaging. If I had gone in there and said, like, academics screwed me over, 
I didn't get what I wanted. I was promised, I was never promised, but I was told that if you publish, you get jobs and I didn't get a job, right? Like that's just not the right foot to put uh, in an interview. It can be there for you, but go to have that conversation with a friend over a beer at an interview. One of the most common ones for PhDs to use is I want to have more impact. And that was equally true. You know, publishing a paper, it sits in a library. No one ever reads it. Where when I did analysis at Facebook, that influenced how folks actually used Facebook. I could walk over to my friend's phone and say, yeah, I influenced that feature that you're looking at now. And so that real impact was equally part of the draw. And it was the reason to share in the interviews that uh, fits better than the, and I would recommend that for any job seeker. Don't walk Mm -hmm. in there putting negative energy on your past role. Talk about what excites you about the next opportunity. Because that helps the interviewer see the story for you. Then they don't have to make up the story. You're already telling them the story. Mm -hmm. I have a background in evolutionary biology where I've done quantitative analysis. I've done more than 150 experiments. I'm excited to leverage that quantitative expertise towards the data science role here in an area where I can have direct impact. Super well put and super positive. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that helps people say, I want this person on my team. Yeah. No, it, it's true. It's it's uh, it makes total sense. Now, uh, people, some people are watching, and I have Hendrik Iceberg here, and he's he's saying something that I it's I've heard before. Some some graduates shy away from non-academic jobs because they feel they won't find the kind of stimulation they enjoy doing their PhD work. Do you have any examples of interesting projects you've worked on? Uh, you you've alluded very vaguely to to you know. Uh, having an impact on features uh, on an app that half the planet uses daily. Um, but yeah, this 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 uh, question of, oh, it, it won't be uh, intellectually as stimulating as what I had in my PhD. I'm pretty sure you have uh, examples or at least an opinion on that. Yeah. Oh, plenty of opinion. Well, first, I want to debunk the myth that academics has this constant intellectual stimulation or freedom, right? A lot of times academics tout this freedom where when I was looking towards, okay, how am I going to get my work funded as a faculty member? Mm -hmm. It was really constraining the type of stuff I could do. And I worked with chimps and folks were saying, don't work with chimps anymore. Go work with mice. It's a better model organism. You'll get NIH funding. That wasn't freedom. And Mm -hmm. so I felt, okay, if I'm going to have to do something that I don't love, I might as well get paid for it. So I had, again, that's not what I would say in an interview, but that was sort of my, okay, you know, I'll stick it to academics mindset. And when I got to academic or when I got to industry, the problems are fascinating because of their complexity, right? If you look at an app like Facebook, how do we make this a good app to use? And I will speak to having worked there, you know, roughly 10 years ago at that point, it was, how do we actually make this engaging? How do we make this interesting for folks? How do we make this useful and not full of friction, right, and difficult to use. And those type of questions are fascinating to investigate. You can actually jump in and have some really good research questions that then you can do experiments, see how things work and follow up. And so the types of projects that I worked on there were how do we make these experiences better for folks? I then worked, you know, I actually moved into Google after that and worked on a team called People Analytics, which says how do we make employee experiences better? fascinating questions there as well. And then at the end, I worked on Google Cloud, which again, there's that question of how do we understand how someone buys a cloud product and actually enable our products to meet their needs? 
Those are focused research questions, right? They have a sort of very clear outcome that they need, but the complexity, the possible range of outcomes you can discover, there's a lot of intellectual stimulation available there. And in that domain of you know platforms used by so many people, I feel that you were talking about the the import how you were stating that the importance uh, for you to get into this new space was the immediacy of the seeing the result of what you do, and here you are in in a in a place where what you do can there's metrics right away once it's implemented you can start seeing the numbers coming in and saying okay this change improved this change not so much so I I can see I can see how there's a satisfaction of dealing with a complex. For you, behavioral, I guess, issue or problem or, or conundrum, but then seeing the result right away for sure must have, must be very, very fulfilling. Yeah. And I will I will counteract that to the result in academics is publishing a paper. Publishing a paper is like a nine to twelve month, you know, wrestling match with reviewers, <laughs> etc. It's tough, and then you get to the end, and the paper doesn't feel like a joy; it feels like a relief. Mm -hmm. Where here, there was a pride to it. There was a pride of, I did an analysis that informed a decision that now I can go over to my friend and point to their phone and say, that thing is because of my analysis, <laughs> right? That real, real impact for real people that, again, has to be taken with care, with ethics. There's all sorts of concerns about that work now that's, you know, mm -hmm. 10 years later. But I, I think with the intention there to actually say, how do we build a good experience here? there is real impact that can be made there. And especially if you look at questions like how do we uh, build the experience for different languages or in an accessible way? I mean, those are just improvements that mm -hmm. help folks have an easier time in their day to day. Yeah. Now you mentioned that there, you know, after that first Facebook kind of like, op like the opening of that chapter, there's been like three or four other chapters after. And I wonder how, how, um, in terms of, of weight and uh, of importance, how important has your scientific background been going from one to the next? Is it diluting? Are people just looking at what you did before? Or is the fact that you did a PhD, that you did research, was your scientific past still something important to, to the people who hired you? Well, so my scientific training is still important today. I honestly run my business like a scientist and I'm testing hypotheses and gathering data. So I still leverage it. Did that PhD influence the decisions of hiring managers? Less and less so as I gained more industry experience, because then I could speak to, you know, hey, I grew this by 200 million users. And that was a more relevant data point. The doctoral experience wasn't a pro or con. It just wasn't as relevant as the experience in the prior role. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't an obstacle either, right? No. And, and what I would say for PhDs, if you run into a group where it feels like they don't know what to make of your doctoral training or they view it as an obstacle, that might not be the group for you, but you will find one where that's not the case, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a group where someone says, well, I don't really know what to make, but your skills are awesome. Come join our team. That's the type of team you want to join moving out of your PhD. You want to have someone who is open to the experience you bring. And those hiring managers exist. They are not 100% of hiring managers, but there are folks who are going to say, well, okay, I've never seen this background before, but talking to you in the interview, I think that you actually have a lot of skills. So let's give this a go. Mm -hmm. And so that's the type of hiring manager you want to look for. So, Tori, uh, I've heard stories of. Uh, 
people coming in and the the hiring manager or the or the the person anyway uh, in, in, responsible for for hiring um, had this fear of oh this person wants to be the smartest person in the room maybe wants to ha make huge demands in terms of a salary or 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 whatnot is it is this something that you've that you've heard also and my and i have a kind of a you kind of just gave the answer to it is if this is your feeling that you get well move on and you'll find a better place but uh, is this something that's still today in 2022 you can come across yeah and i, I will complement that both by talking about prejudices that might exist because they're real prejudices there and what you can do to navigate it So there will be some folks who will be, you know, maybe not prejudiced, but maybe they have some notion. PhDs are going to try to be the smartest person in the room, whatever those prejudices are. There are also folks who are going to see PhD and say, oh, smart, awesome, right? So sort of these conclusions folks draw about the PhD, you as an interview candidate, you can't control those. Your mm -hmm. interviewers, your hiring manager, they may have pre-standing assumptions, and there's only so much you can do to control them. What you can do is, as an interviewee is close any gaps that they might picture. Okay. So, for example, say there's an impression that PhDs don't know how to work quickly because the time frame of PhD projects is longer. You can walk into the interview with stories ready about stuff that you delivered in a matter of weeks. Right? Mm -hmm. Say there is an impression that PhDs are know-it-all. You can go in there with questions and curiosity. And so if you can think through and use your interview experiences and conversations to say, okay, where might there be gaps? How can I help to close those gaps? Mm -hmm. I'm not telling folks to go against authenticity or values, but if there are ways you can take your same experience and reframe it to help de-risk yourself, that will help a manager who hasn't hired a PhD before feel that you are a less risky choice. This makes sense. So preparing, and so we talked about two of them, like the being a uh, trying to be the the most, the smartest person in the room. Which I've I've been told again and again that it's really something that will uh, be a no no for 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 people who hire because they they want to create teams that of the of people who collaborate. Um, but are there other ones, like the other preconceptions that, that people might not expect, but that are out there and that they can prepare for? Yeah. Well, and I mean, again, I've heard the sort of PhD smart, right? So you'll get a like smart, sometimes you will get just smart, whether that's true, who knows, but like you get PhD smart. I do think the pace of work is there. I think the collaboration is a big one, the collaboration mm -hmm. point, because industry work is so team oriented. And many academic projects are not. If you can speak to your experiences there and prepare some vignettes for those common behavioral questions like, tell me about a challenging interaction with a coworker. And as an academic, you've had them. You've had a tricky colleague or supervisor or peer reviewer. And so you can speak to those and be ready to convey that you will work well with people. But I think that is one of the big concerns. So mm -hmm. collaboration with others, pace, those are two of the areas that differ a lot between mm -hmm. PhDs. And so if they have hired PhDs before, they may have seen folks struggle in those areas and so want to assess how a new candidate is along those dimensions. This makes total sense. And it, again, it, it kind of aligns with things I've heard before. 
2023 is here, and I'm going to bring you some new features on the podcast this year. I really want to improve the show and reach more people like you. To do so, I'd really, really love to get to know all of you a little bit better. So this week, I'm taking the opportunity of having this space in the middle of the episode to ask you to please go to papaphd.com forward slash audience and fill in the survey that's there for you. This way, I'll get to know you better and I'll be able to better serve you with the podcast. Thanks for being a fan. And now to continue my conversation with Tori Wobber. Now, one thing, and and uh, it's not something that we've talked about before, but one thing that uh, can, where there can be some misalignment when you go for that first job outside of academia, misalignment or simply unknown that leaves you a bit lost as to what to do, what to say, what to ask is salary. Uh, mm-hmm. What you know, I my feeling coming out of my PhD was thinking back on when I came out of my PhD was. I didn't, I wasn't prepared to value or I wasn't trained to value my time too much. It was more or less the opposite. And because there's, there might be some unknowns for the person hiring, they might also not be ready to right away offer you the salary that you might think you deserve. Is it something also that you cover with, with the people you coach? Yeah. Uh, and, and what, what are good practices there to, to have, you know, to have, first conversations on that aspect of pay that are not cringy or <laughs> too uh, <laughs> too difficult. Well, and so the good news is that now more and more public resources are becoming available to look up salary information up front. Some mm-hmm. states are actually mandating that they post a salary range. Okay. So you can look up front, say this role doesn't meet my standards and rule it out. The states that are publishing the salaries that will work for you Otherwise, there are resources like Glassdoor, Payscale, Blind, all these areas where you can go look up ranges so that you have a sense of whether there's a range match. I and I, my practice when recruiters ask up front about salary expectations, I say something vague without a specific number. So I say something along the lines of, I would like to be able to maintain my comfortable standard of living. I'm happy to chat about that once we get to the offer stage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Something that punts it to the offer stage. Because once you have an offer, you have a lot of leverage to negotiate on salary. And you wouldn't want to say something up front that undercuts that leverage. And so it's okay to give a sort of, no, I've checked salary ranges online and I'm comfortable with the range. Let's have a more concrete discussion if we get to the offer stage. It's fair. I love it. I yeah. Love it. it makes total sense. And it's true that there, there are more and more tools. Like you said, Glassdoor was already there at the time, you know, in 2010. But I think there's there's more now, and do, so do use do make use of those. Now the 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 title you know was how to you know had to do with social sciences people going into tech. If I imagine I come out I come out with a PhD in history, is there any place for me in tech? Yeah, absolutely. It takes more learning and more de-risking, right? Basically saying, okay, here's where my skills fit. But there are areas I I worked with a woman uh, on the Google people analytics team who was doing more of like market research and she had a background in library science. Right. And so that was just an example for me of, okay, taking this dedicated humanities background and finding ways to apply it. 
There are areas where that understanding of humans, understanding of documents, all that stuff comes into play. It's your job as a candidate to find those and to find the language that matches your skills to those opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so I recommend folks do internal exploration to say, what do I want to do? How do I want to do it? Go look for jobs that match those skills and then find ways to communicate to close any imagined gaps. And if you're trying something for three to six months, and no, I would say three months, if you're trying something for three months and nothing's clicking, take a step back, revisit, say, okay, do I have a good match and a good message here? Mm-hmm. And and that that is totally logical and almost scientific, like you were saying. <laughs> uh, you know, can't help but, it. <laughs> it's my background. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of the the challenges that I that I imagine people may have uh, is uh, th- this requires some exploration, like you said, internal, but then external. Uh, and uh, my question uh, was the following, which which is how do you get to know that language? How do you get to know uh, th- this, this new culture, you know, or I imagine also some of these positions might not exist while you're doing your PhD and, and might, you might be the first person doing this or, or that. And this is already a little bit more hypothetical, but this first, this question of learning the lingo, uh, knowing who, who's, who's there, who that has done it, you know, before me, how, how do you go, how do you suggest people go about that part? So three resources come to mind and there may be more. First, I host these monthly panels where I'm talking to folks now in industry, Mm -hmm. PhDs working in industry. If you join one of those, listen to the terms that the folks use. They will use things like cross-functional stakeholders, uh, you know, A-B testing, all sorts of things that you may then say, that's strange. But if you go and you look them up, you say, oh, hey, I've done A-B testing. I've done a controlled experiment. And so they're almost different terms for the things you've done. So panels can be one way to start to hear that terminology. A second is your existing network. If you have friends who work in industry roles, offer to buy them a coffee and chat with them about what they do and listen to how they talk about it. Listen to what they emphasize as success. Listen to their challenges. And if you talk to three to five folks, you'll start to hear hear patterns and terms that keep coming up. Those are ones that you can then say, how can I square that with my existing experience? The third category where you can do this are informational interviews. That's with your existing or with new network, with first degree connections, introductions to second degree connections, where you can say, I'm curious uh, to learn more about the data science role. Does anyone I know work in a data science role? And uh, would they be willing to speak with me for 30 minutes about what they do? And in that one-on-one conversation, again, you can start to get a sense of what skills do they use? What do they emphasize is important? What does a project look like? And you can then use those to start reframing the way you mentally bucket your own work. Mm -hmm. Often I uh, recommend people do informational uh, interviews and and look on LinkedIn, etc., which I think is a great platform for that. You'll notice I didn't mention job listings because job listings tend to tend to spike imposter syndrome. Exactly. We read those and we say, I could never do that. That's There's impossible. There's too many items that I don't, you know, too many uh, boxes that I'm not checking, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. 
And so my personal preference is to have conversations because I feel less intimidated there. I will say I was just doing a panel yesterday with a, a panelist who was a, more of an introvert and who actually didn't do informational interviews, but did that term scraping through LinkedIn and was able to not have uh, imposters get awoken by that. If you can do that, awesome. Yeah. And so for each person, like check where your imposters come up, where those gremlins arise and find a strategy that allows you to explore keeping those gremlins in check, whatever that strategy is. I'm super happy that you mentioned the, this that this just happened yesterday. This question of introversion, because I believe that a lot of a lot of us, or at least a lot of people and 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 you know young researchers that I cross, are on that side of this of, of this kind of spectrum. Uh, and uh, yeah, there's other ways to do it. You can use your your uh, data you know, mining abilities to go about it and make word clouds and things like that uh, and, and do it without having to expose yourself too much. But I also agree with you that conversation and establishing, you know, uh, authentic relationships with people is the best way to go because there's so much that, that you can learn. Now, um, one question that I had is, uh, because we've, we've talked about so many interesting Things and already like things to to implement to start preparing yourself, but one of the big doubts that I think might be out there is, you know, and I and I think I believe with your experience, your personal experience, but also your experience working with people who are transitioning, can you give people who in the social sciences different examples of cool and exciting things that companies are doing and that they need and want? social sciences graduates doing them? Absolutely. I'll start first with the reframe. I think many PhDs are out there saying, what am I qualified for? Mm -hmm. What might I do? And I, and I basically, I like to reframe that as fit finding, right? What do I like to do? What am I strong at? What do these companies need? Where is there an overlap? And the stronger the fit, the more happy and fulfilled you are, and the happier the company is with the returns you're delivering. So viewing it less as sort of qualified of like, do I measure up and more about these like two circles that you want to overlap? That's the, the mental reframe I suggest. Social science skills in tech, if I talk about the way I use them, I think knowing how to frame and test a hypothesis, knowing how to think critically about statistics and probability. For some folks in UX, knowing how to run a survey or a focus group. Those are skills that are immediately useful because they enable teams to build products more effectively. So an engineer, for example, might be actually doing the coding to build the product. And a product manager might be talking to customers to get ideas of what customers need in that product. But if, say, they're testing that with a beta round of customers and they need someone to understand data from a beta test, Someone who knows how to work with data, knows how to make sense of that, how to do a thoughtful experiment, how to run statistics without violating all sorts of assumptions, that person has a seat at the table. If the product manager is talking to one or two customers, but wants someone to go out and run a survey of 1,000 or 10,000 potential folks, that's where someone who has experience in survey design is going to be of use to them. And so these data science UX roles are influencing the direction of what gets built to best serve customer or user needs through their ability to distill insights from existing products, new potential products from users, 
and translate those into directions for the product team. Mm -hmm. That's a sort of product data science or UX opportunity that squares really nicely with social science training. Mm -hmm. And and uh, is, are there some um, names of positions that you can share? So if, if people are searching, what what should I what should be my search terms if I'm looking for this type of position? Yeah, and uh, it's funny we were just having this conversation yesterday. The job titles vary a lot: data science, okay. UX researcher, etc. But if you almost search instead of by the nouns but by the verbs, and this is Eric mm. Stevens's wonderful idea here to basically look for verbs that apply for you. I think this was Eric who mentioned it, right? And so you basically have analysis, uh, some sort of uh, hypothesis testing, surveys, okay, that's a noun, but you know, this sort of skills, if you look for jobs that involve those skills, it almost doesn't matter what the title is, <laughs> right? And so that's, again, the person who I mentioned yesterday, Elena, who actually did this Uh, LinkedIn data mining, she just went out and started saying, okay, what verbs are commonly represented? <laughs> and if you're agnostic to title, you will find something where your skills will translate. And I would say, don't focus too much on what they call it as a title, because even the same title can look very different at different organizations. And so you want to use those bullets in the job description that tell you what the job entails to help you find fit. Mm -hmm. And let's say you're on LinkedIn, you're able to do this from the search, uh, the yeah. search, the little search menu. I believe so. Yeah, in, I believe you get a search data analysis and, and find that. But I haven't tried it myself, so folks can try out and see if it works. <laughs> yeah, that it's a super, super, super cool and super well, uh, well suited for people coming out of a PhD to to uh, to just do this uh, this digging. And uh, yeah, I really, really love it. And the verbs uh, instead of the nouns uh, is, is an interesting uh, an interesting way to go too. Because like like I was saying, I think a lot of what the companies need or the organizations need it could be governments, but is based on new problems that are you know that are rearing their heads today. So there's there's no history to that type of position so there's no name per se that's going to bring you there so yeah going with the verbs the actions the skills definitely a better better way to go super super cool and if an organization is hiring smartly they're hiring for folks who can solve the problems of the future not the past and so if you've got an organization that says we've been doing this one type of process for the past 20 years we want someone who's going to come in and slot exactly for that process Right, that that sort of organization is inflexible to change. Mm -hmm. But if they say this is this person who has skills, and so they can flex whether we go in direction A, B, C, or X, right? That flexibility is better for an organization, and that's mm -hmm. the type of expertise a PhD brings. They're not the person who's going to slot straight into the thing because they've been doing the thing for 15 years, and that's the only thing they can do. They're the person who has this ability to think critically to step back and look at the big picture, but also go into the nitty gritty details. PhD trains you on all those levels. And that's hugely valuable for organizations who need that more flexible, fluid talent. Mm. So I, I imagine anything uh, in innovation, uh, be it, and here maybe maybe we're going more to the STEM side, but not, not, not only, like you said, like, like you said, different skills fit different places in a, an organization. But um, yeah, I guess try to to look for. I'm trying to sum up, you know, when people are choosing where to go, somewhere where people 
look at you and say, cool, you, you are, you're curious and smart coming to the team. That's the first one. But second one, places that are turned towards the future and, and maybe not towards a product or towards just giving their, their, uh, clients or public what they've already been giving. Uh, and I think this is going to help people who, who are looking for stimulus for, for, for something that is, uh, uh, interesting and intellectually stimulating. Uh, so the choice of where you're you're going to to go, uh, in which who, what type of organization, is uh, is very very important. We're reaching uh, the 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 end of the interview, sadly. And one thing I would like to ask you for sure now is to say if you've been listening to this episode, you like what Tori has been sharing. You've kind of understood how much know-how she has about this question of transitioning out of your zone of comfort let's say and into something you know stimulating and where you'll be valued and you'll be you'll feel fulfilled uh where is the best place uh to find you tori well and so following me on twitter will be a great place to start i post insights there for phds or discussion among phds who have moved into industry on topics relevant to this process every day. And so I'm really excited to connect with and engage with folks there. If you would like to then reach out to talk with me about strategy sessions that I run specifically tailored for PhDs looking to leave academics, you can find my contact form on my website, which is here, and reach out to me. And I'm happy to share more details there because my goal is that folks should not feel lost or stuck here, mm-hmm. right? So come mm-hmm. to Twitter, find the information. If you find that information is overwhelming and you want more guidance, always happy to connect with folks to help them see what the next stage looks like for them. And the site is victoriawaber.com. It's uh, in one word, victoriawaber, W-O-B-B-E-R.com, and you'll find everything there. Um, now, one of the things that I uh, that I like uh, also at the end of, uh, of a conversation, of one of these conversations, is uh, to um, to ask the guest, for uh one thing so for someone who has either like listen listen to this episode and said oh my i haven't started thinking about what comes next uh or someone who is now at the end of let's say their phd and who realized oh my i need to look into this asap and and, and try to figure out what's the next chapter um i'd love to know what would be your advice in terms of what's at least one thing you can do to start, to get you started on the path. Yeah. Well, and, and first thing is just a reassurance for anyone at any stage in that process. As a PhD, you have skills that are useful out of academics. Right now, no extra training or courses needed. You already have those skills. You will need to learn how to translate them or reposition them, but you already have the skills. And so the thing I would recommend folks take time for, and this time frame differs depending on where you are, is to fit find. And by fit finding, I mean, know yourself, know your strengths, know your values, know what you enjoy doing, and then check out the available opportunities and look for where there are fits and non-fits. Sometimes the strongest information comes from a closed door, comes from you seeing a job and saying, that's not for me. Mm -hmm. If you can start to do that, you can start to narrow the precision that you have so that when you're applying, you're applying with a really focused resume and story and set of opportunities, and that will save you a lot of pain and effort and a lot of rejection. So take that time to recognize that you have skills, 
and then start to get your to know yourself and get to know the market to help that fit finding go more smoothly. I love it and it really aligns with what I believe is key and the, the looking at job postings for, for if you're you know if you're like this person that you met maybe it's something that you're going to have fun doing but there's a forest of, of of offers out there and it can be daunting and so if I try to sum up uh what I'm taking home from from this great conversation, and and again, thanks for having been here today, Tori, is start from within. So start with this fit finding. Start with, and I love that you mentioned it. Just knowing what I don't want to do is super super important and and valuable and and a precious piece of information that that cuts down a bunch of these trees uh, of of this forest that i just mentioned and leaves already like maybe half of them already you don't need to worry about them second have conversations with people who have followed the path that you're thinking of maybe following and who are doing the work that you think that you might be uh, you might want to do in the future because again after a conversation you might learn that Okay, this is actually not what I thought, and it's actually not something that interests me. And you'll go on to an, to another conversation. So, first, search within. Second, have conversations. And three, the third thing that I really want to kind of the third point that I, I really want to drive uh, drive home here and and make make people not forget is this thing of reframing. The, the the interview experience i really really love that it was really at the beginning of the of our conversation but it really marked me and it's it's seems to me like a really really smart if you're able to do it it's a really smart way to uh to have the the whole job search and and job interview process not be too much of a daunting one but also of a emotionally difficult one and if you can remove that obstacle it's going to first make you go through the experience more smoothly but also i i believe and i think that's what really works for you is that the person on the other side also will see you in a different light and the positives will come out much more than than what can be filtered by the stress the anxiety or the introversion that you might have yeah no and it's so funny the, the metaphor that comes to mind there which i sometimes put you know in some ways then interviewing that same advice goes for dating <laughs> Right? You show up to a date nervous and desperate and all that that comes across on the other side. We've all been on that on both sides of the table. And so recognizing that interview has some of that same components of, hey, we don't really know each other. This is a new situation. How do we interact? And so if you can come to it with that confidence, calm, that genuine, let's check if there's a genuine fit, just mm-hmm. makes the whole experience a better opportunity to assess fit. So use for your dating life as well, if you would like. <laughs> I love it. It's a great way to to uh, to end this this conversation. Tori, again, thanks so much for having been on Papa PhD. It's been a pleasure, uh, and uh, I really uh, I really love the the passion that you have and that you transmit for what you do. And uh, and uh, I'm 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 sending you thanks for although I I haven't worked with you, but for the help I know that you give uh, that you offer people who come to you, and uh, it, it's uh, it's very important. And uh, I hope uh, I hope a lot of people who are listening uh, first learn from what you shared, but eventually, me, you know, end, end up asking you, with saying thank you to you, but asking questions for anything that uh, that they might need in that domain. 
Thanks so much for having me. And thank you so much for hosting this, this resource for folks to be able to open up opportunity and see through these conversations what's possible for them. It takes a lot of work on your side to actually make this happen. And so thank you so much for, I don't know if folks who are listening or seeing this realize that, but thank you so much for the work that you put in. Papa PhD is a labor of love. If you like the show and have found value in it, you can pay it forward by donating to help other people like you hear Papa PhD. Even a $5 one-time donation will be really appreciated. So go to papaphd.com forward slash support to donate or to papaphd.com forward slash Patreon to become a patron. I didn't create this podcast to make money. I want to help and inspire people. Your support will help me cover the cost of hosting, equipment, and other recurring expenses needed to bring you a high-quality show week after week. Thank you for your support. I am David Mendez. See you next week.